0: Martin, welcome to the Business Growth Mindset Podcast, uh, the Top Achievers Series. I am incredibly honoured and and privileged to have you here today. Um, You are an incredibly busy person, but you always make time for people, and and, and I'm really grateful that you've done so today. We are actually in the Chamber's uh, old office. You're, in fact, the CEO's old office, um, which is quite strange and unique, and now it's been converted into a boardroom. Um, I have the privilege of also sharing office spaces with you here at the Chamber, and I'm very grateful for that too. So welcome. Um, why don't we start, before we dive deeply into the podcast, uh, let's talk a little bit about you. You've had an amazing life, um, and I'd like to our listeners to just learn a little bit more about who is Martin Hazy, and then we can talk about, I guess, where you are at now as the CEO of Business A also known as the Chamber of Commerce, so
1: take us away. It was a, Christian thank you, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast, I'm very appreciative. The, uh, quite telling isn't it? So we were sitting, we are sitting in my former office which mm-hmm. is a large voluminous room and I moved out of it. Great. And I moved out of it because I felt disconnected from the people. So the vast majority of my team, as you know, are on the other side of the building. Great. And I felt like I was working in the boondocks, mm. and I actually kind of gave up this office very early on a few years ago when I became the chief executive of Business SA because I really wanted to be amongst it. And it's, we'll chat about that today, I'm sure. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, I, can I just say,
0: I think that was a very courageous move, and I, think, I also believe that it sent a very clear message to your people that you were going to be one of them, rather because it is quite alienated where uh, people that may not know the space, I mean, this office is huge. And I remember desk was here, uh, a table here and a, ca- a couple of couches, and it's kind of the office of every executive's desires, right, you know, if you're thinking old capitalists, and and I think you kind of debunked that by saying, no, 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 I'm gonna move right in the huddle with everybody else. And you took uh, Sarah, your EA, who was actually in the office next door and I think that that's a very bold move and it's set a very clear statement that I believe helps you actually reinvigor the, the Chamber of Business SA and, and also uh, build real
1: momentum and integrity with your team. So, congratulations. Thank you. I do hope we have an opportunity today together to chat about the transformation of Business SA later today in the podcast because uh, that was... One, you know, small but possibly important thing that, you know, I've done over the last few years um, to really transform the culture of Business SA and what we do and why we do it and what our purpose is and all these types of things. But um, I've got a multi, somewhat varied kind of history, Christian. I I didn't come from a family that was in business um, and many entrepreneurs and business people do, as we know um, I didn't. I came from a family who was probably more professionals. Um, my father was a lawyer and he later became a judge. Um, but he passed away very, very young. So I had a very kind of young wake-up call at the age of 20 um, that kind of the father figure was gone and I just had to get on with it. So, and I was at university at that time and I completely lost my, my kind of bearings for a while there and dropped out of university and got a job. And I worked in real estate. I'd kind of secured a real estate license along the way. But in my early years, I was, you know, I was in my 20s. I was selling real estate for some years. But I must say, it taught me a lot. And it taught me a lot about people. Um, so I had all these life lessons relatively young. Um, and I then went on to become a retailer. And the retailers never left me, I must say. I, I take this retail philosophy towards everything that I do because if you can't work with people it's very difficult to work in business and it doesn't matter if you're even a pure technologist you've still got to rely on others to help you realize your vision whatever your vision may be Um, and it was my retail grounding which I did for about 17 years um, which has really taught me that and I've carried those lessons with me every step of the way. You know why don't we talk a little bit more about your retail journey I mean um,
0: there, there are going to be people on, on the show that know who you are uh, I mean I've had the privilege of knowing you for a very long time uh, we actually met because of our entrepreneurial endeavours many many years ago and then it's somehow we've uncovered that by my future marriage uh, our families have been interconnected for a lifetime and, and so I've got some really cool stories that I've heard of your mum and dad and uh, Wick and Rosie's Uh, that's Lucy's grandparents and and also the the history and I think that's the wonderful thing about Adelaide it's it's really a one degree of separation like we kind of know each other but let's talk a little bit about youth works um for anyone that's out there I mean you guys used to have some of the cleverest marketing and magazines of models parading clothes and yeah let's talk Rundle Mall and I think that's I'd like to hear that story because you were young moving into that space and Um, And YouthWorks had a couple of different iterations as well, as in you sold it and then bought it back if I remember correctly,
1: and do you want to share a little bit about that? It was a great journey. Um, My retail days started before YouthWorks, um, is that my first retail venture was actually in the Brickworks markets in Torrensville in South Australia, which at that point in time was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday market, it was a weekend market. And I cut my teeth in a relatively lower risk environment uh, at the Brickworks market for a number of years. And I built up this little shop and then um, sold it. What were you selling? I was selling giftware. Right. So it was a giftware store that did a whole range of things, including shoe repairs, including engraving. and did a whole range of things. Um, So I really learned the trade of being a retailer right at the coalface. Right at the coalface. I was working during the week, Monday to Friday, and I was at my little shop on the weekend. So, and that was a good thing to do. Um, I must say that, for me, that was a very good thing to do. Um, I then set up YouthWorks in 1993, and the first store was actually in a place called Regent Arcade, Mm -hmm. off Rundle Mall, which is the main shopping drag in Adelaide, of course. And uh, it was a streetwear store. Now, that doesn't sound kind of, revolutionary in itself but then it was Uh so at that point in time the market was characterized by surfwear stores menswear stores and department stores and this whole kind of streetwear clubwear type of category didn't really even exist in the market so we invented something entirely new and it the first six months were tough going because i didn't have the formula right and i didn't have a lot of reserves behind me so i had to be very very quick in terms of reinventing that business so that it kind of met the needs of the market. And it was an emerging market, and there was no rule book. So we were just learning every step of the way, every day. But once we found our feet, we kind of found our formula. And once we found the formula, it really did grow. And that, that little business, I think, turned over about a million dollars in its first year. I wasn't really thinking about that at the time, but other retailers were saying for a 63-square-meter retail store to turn over a million dollars in year one was just like off the Richter scale in terms of retail performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes what you don't know is what you don't know, so you don't have context. Yes. And I must say sometimes that can be a blessing. <laughs> so if if you kind of contemplate in business everything that could happen before you do it, sometimes you may not do it. you may not do anything. You you may be frozen by the, the, the risk or the all the, the permutations of how it could play out. So I was just blindly naive but incredibly enthusiastic so and very hardworking. So we made it work. And that was a real-life lesson, I think. But um, it grew, and then it moved to the largest store in Rundle Mall. And then kind of over the next kind of 12 years, it actually rolled out to 18 stores across Adelaide and mm-hmm. Melbourne. And then we went into manufacturing. Then oh. you had a shoe brand too. and We did. We had five yeah. sole shoes stores. That's it, sole shoes. Of which we had two of those in Adelaide, three of those in Melbourne and we had about 250 employees at one point in time we were manufacturing also we were about a third vertical meaning we were kind of manufacturing a third Mm -hmm. of what we were selling um, through our own brands and our own local designers and we were manufacturing in australia indonesia china and india Um, so i was traveling a lot um and and we were wholesaling so it really Quickly became a relatively sophisticated business. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I think we got up towards about thirty million dollars turnover before we sold out. That's amazing. Mm-hmm.
0: That's amazing in that in that space. Now you sold it the first time around.
1: What made you reacquire it? I'll explain why we sold it the first time. Okay. Uh, it was a really interesting journey because I was a sole director, sole shareholder for many many years, um, and the in I kind of through good advice of the organisation we were both involved in at that point in time, the Young Entrepreneurs' Organisation, I thought, right, I've got to set up a board because this business is scaling faster than, you know, what I'm, you know, my knowledge, my experience. You know, every step I was going beyond my comfort zone, every single time. I've never been there before. So I lived out of my comfort zone and that's another lesson. Yes. I've always lived out of my comfort zone. I've never gone back into it. Um, And I'm a strong believer in that, that if you kind of just use the visual analogy of your comfort zone, which is a circle which surrounds you, Uh when you step beyond it, what do you do? You expand it. When you step beyond it again, what do you do? You expand it. And practically, I just think that means you can deal with, we can deal with more stuff. Because more things come your way and you're a lot calmer, you're a lot more... Insightful, and you've got the experience on how to deal with it too. So I'm a big believer of if you're living within your comfort zone, you're either not pushing yourself hard enough, or someone else is not pushing you hard enough, or you're not realising your potential. You've you got to feel a bit uncomfortable. It's, I'm a big believer, in
0: that. and and absolutely, and I and I and I love saying that we need to become comfortable with becoming with being uncomfortable. Uh, so I loved, I love that. And I think anyone listening, that is a brilliant, brilliant lesson. Because if you're not, if you're, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. That's really the, the true essence of it. So if you're not pushing yourself to fall into that outer, outer, outer layer, as you put that circle, and expanding that circle, I love the way you just put that. Because so many people um, spend their life being complacent. And then they're always wondering why is it that so-and-so is doing so much better than me well so-and-so is stepping out of that circle taking not necessarily silly risks but measured risks calculated risks and as entrepreneurs we have certainly learned that and we've we, you know, i've had my fair share of failures um so let's just recap you, you you set up a board
1: right i set up a board with some very very experienced people mm. <clears throat> so one of the people on my board had owned a uh, publicly listed 440 store retail chain across Australia, New Zealand and Southeast Asia Um, and a very, you know, sophisticated business. Um, And I thought that's what I need. There's nothing that I'm going to do that this person hasn't already experienced. So um, I set up a board of about four people and I kind of had the, you know, the pluck uh, very early on when I met this individual at a function in Melbourne, to say, I'd love you to join my board. Now, it took me 12 months to deliver that outcome, mm-hmm. um, but he ultimately agreed and um, added an incredible amount of horsepower to the organisation in terms of experience. Um, and we grew. We, we really did go into a protracted period of growth um, as a, re- a result of good strategy and good execution of that strategy. Um, but you know, if I look back on the YouthWorks days, um, the most tangible, powerful, valuable commodity we had was not our products; it was our culture. Mm-hmm. Had an extraordinary culture. You actually did. I mean, it was just an it was just an extraordinary culture. I knew people
0: that worked for you. I was a customer. My friends were customers, and it was it was really really good to see it was the vibrancy but the level of care that people had and it was all about customer service and i i I tell you now it's interesting and we're going to talk about the transformation that businesses say at some point um you really have never come out of retail because your focus is always your people your focus is when I say your people, you treat your customers like they're your people. They are your people. You look at a stakeholder approach to everything. I watch you now walking the corridors here and the way you engage with your board at Business SA and, and all your executive team. Uh, you know, let's give Slammer a plug just for the hell of it, you know. You know, you you, you manage those people, but you don't manage them, you lead them and then you give them the freedom to do what they need to do. But then I watched your engagement, even at the latest lunch that we had, which was what three hundred and fifty people. It was phenomenal with the, you know, Minister Spears uh, speaking as well. You, you can carry that room because you care about the people in that room. So, just let's touch on how you have developed, how you develop the culture at YouthWorks, and I guess how you've been able to carry that through
1: all the way to the, to Business SA. I, before I do that, I will answer your first question, and I apologise that to I haven't questioned. Question. I thought you were just trying to not answer. No, no, because I just love to <laughs> chat. I love to chat. Yeah, either way, that's what we're here to do. Is the, uh, we built the business up, and we actually received an unsolicited offer from a publicly listed company, who right. were a very large, again, multinational retail group, um, and I was, you know, I was I think I was kind of 39 years of age at that point in time and I kind of thought it's you know I'm warming up this is too you know I've got lots more to do here we can't be selling this business but again I did kind of rely on the experience of my business partner to some degree and he did say to me look you know we've done a great job building up this organization but you know offers in the retail market don't grow on trees uh-huh. and um, you've only got often limited kind of opportunities for some form of trade sale or exit strategy and so forth and you know cold hard reality is that we hadn't really been spending a lot of time contemplating an exit strategy so i probably broke one of the golden rules of entrepreneurship is that i did not start with the end in mind yeah and you know i've learned that you know i've always learned you know a lot of entrepreneurs do that right it's the biggest mistake
0: a lot of i made it absolutely it cost me everything the first time around absolutely won't happen again
1: and it's really interesting it's kind of and it it can get complicated because you kind of think, oh, "Hold on, well, what about the purpose of the organisation? Well, that's separate again. The, the purpose of the organisation—the the organisation is not you. Mm-hmm. The organisation can have a very, very strong purpose, and go on over the years and over the decades and do amazing things. And you might be credited with starting it, growing it, scaling it, or playing a role in that. Mm-hmm. But you know, and it's very hard sometimes for entrepreneurs to differentiate." Between themselves and their organisation, because they see them being the one, one of the same. Thing they identify themselves. with it. They do, and, and that, I did. Yeah, I did. I mean, I was just so vested. So, did you sell, or we, did you hold off? We did sell to, to that
0: to, to that offer. We did sell. Was it Was it a number you were happy with?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Um, and Any regrets? Uh it's interesting because it was the first time I'd ever sold a business, mm. um, and I think to the party that acquired us it was probably not an enormous transaction because they were a significant group I think they had group annual turnover about a billion dollars um, and that was a lot in the you know early 2000s and still is a lot um, but the you know for us it was well certainly not so much my business partner I don't think but for me it was mm-hmm. so but it's interesting when you do it exit an enterprise you've also got to foreshadow the exit costs hmm I mean, I remember receiving a, uh, I remember after I'd kind of sold the business and I'd pay, paid out the employee entitlements and done a whole range of things and paid the taxation for that year and paid the $135,000 lawyer's bill, which was, you know, the negotiations for the exit, and paid for this and paid for that. And I'm thinking, gosh, when you sell a business, like, it's not that simple. It's mm-hmm. not that straightforward. The, the transaction costs and the time associated with selling an enterprise, whatever it is, can be very complex. I think the, you just hit the nail, the time.
0: A lot of people, I've been involved in a few exits and particularly reverse mergers and the, the investment of time is something that a lot of people don't measure and the human capital that's required from within the, the organizations being involved. So yeah, so at the end, really good advice there for anyone who is selling, make sure that you actually understand the true cost of that sale and obviously at that size there would have been a lot of cost because you had a publicly listed company with a sizable turnover they always have a thousand lawyers right and they they want to make sure that all their ducks in the road so therefore you have to also have your ducks in the road because you otherwise you'll get burnt in the transaction so you didn't have a long break before reacquiring, how many years was the gap between coming back and buying YouthWorks from the vendor? Probably 12
1: months, so the, the first thing I did, and interesting, another trap for young players is that if, especially if you've got a bricks and mortar business, is that of course, if your name or your company name sits on the lease, and I had 19 of them, so I had 19 leases 19 leasehold interests around Australia.
0: Right. And you didn't remove yourself? They're not
1: removed upon the transaction. Because they can hold you liable for up to two years. Yes, correct. Correct. So, effectively, though, that then becomes 19 subsequent negotiations once you've actually sold your business. Yes. So, one is not predicated on the other. So... You might sell your business to a third party mm-hmm. or you might sell your business to someone within your supply chain or an investor or whoever that might be or it could be, you know, private equity player or it doesn't matter. But you're selling your business. It's got nothing to do with your lease. So they didn't keep all the sites? No. You have got to then go to your respective landlords, and I had many mm-hmm. because we were kind of Main Street as well as Shopping Centre yeah. focused. We had, we had stores. Had on, very interesting landlords. Chapel Street, Melbourne, Collins Street, Melbourne you know, we had shops everywhere, is that you then got to go to all the landlords and say, look, we've sold the business, can we just assign the lease? Now, again, in my naivety, I thought that would have been a relatively straightforward process. It's not. So you've got 19 concurrent negotiations going on where you're trying to close them all out because you've got a latent risk that if the buyer of your business, for whatever reasons, now it was unlikely that the buyer of our business will ever get a default, they're a publicly listed company of scale. But it's a really good lesson for entrepreneurs. You've got to mitigate your risk on your exit. Absolutely. So cover off on those leases. Have a strategy for negotiating your way out of those leases and assigning those leases over to the purchases of your business. Because technically, and it has happened, you are on the hook you are so you could sell your business the purchases of your business can get into financial trouble they could default the landlord comes to you and says you've got to pay the rent and you say I don't own the business they say I don't care pay the rent two How's that? years it's
0: a, in different state laws in South Australia um, yeah I, I, I learned the same lesson when I was selling restaurants and bars mm. yep. and I was like landlords the one landlord came to me he said oh that's all great that you've sold the business and I'm happy to you know do the transaction but I'm going to hold you as Garin for two years, and I'm like, "Excuse me," and yeah. then my lawyers are like Christian, in the law of South Australia. Back then, 12, 14 years ago, yes, they can do that. I'm like, "Surely, they can't get keep my personal guarantee and the new tenants." And they said, "Yeah, they can. They can." And some of those laws have changed, but very good advice. So
1: you managed to get out of all 19 leases. It took me two years, and the I probably had half a million dollars worth of bank guarantees sitting out on the market, which effectively you've got to provide the capital for in order to support the bank so that they provide the bank guarantee, if that all makes sense. You don't know all this stuff. Mm. You don't know all this stuff until you learn all this stuff. And now people that are listening know it, so there's no excuse. So it's just a really interesting one, and I love this, and it's another Mm. lesson because, you, you know... you. One of the greatest commodities of an entrepreneur is to ask questions yes and lots of them
0: good questions and you've got to get better at asking them yeah you know i i I certainly struggled because i'm always the talker and only in the last three or four years where i've learned to become a better leader i've gone you know what it's not about me it's about everybody else how do i actually extract all that knowledge and all that talent that everybody has and, and that's where I've really, I've, I've, I've gone to book books on how to ask better questions. Uh, I normally don't admit that. I'm not sure why I just did. Um, but I actually did. I went out and sourced like two or three books. And I was like, these aren't better questions. These are just standard questions. And then eventually got to evolve. So, Martin, if it took you two years to get out of some of these,
1: what triggered the buyback within that 12-month period? So the, I went back to the purchaser of the business. I did an MBA. So the first thing I did when I sold the business was I literally think the week after I sold it, I enrolled myself in an MBA. I mean, how's that? (laughs) Right, You've got all this time, I'm gonna go and study. So, uh, and it's really interesting because so many of my entrepreneurial mates said to me when I did my MBA, that'll be the end of you. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, ah. you know, you, you become too risk-adverse if you do an MBA. And I must say, I do disagree with that, because I did it, and I loved it. And it turned on parts of my brain which I didn't think it would. And what it taught me was interconnectivity. It really taught me interconnectivity. Can you elaborate on that, what you mean by
0: that? Okay. I, I know what you mean, but I, so, so when you is is
1: make a decision in finance, it's going to impact marketing. When you make a, discussion, a decision in marketing, it could impact upon logistics. When you make a, d- a distribution, if you make a, impact, a decision on uh, logistics and distribution, it could impact upon HR. If you make a, discu- a decision on HR, it could impact legals. I really understood at a much deeper level, what I would call interconnectivity. Yeah. So nothing happens in isolation. As much as no,
0: Nothing happens in isolation. As much that's as
1: the, we want it to, point. as much as we'd like it to, as much as we want to put things into neat little buckets, the world doesn't work that way. That's right, right? And it's the gaps. It's the grey areas. It's all that kind of stuff, which is never that clear. But, and it taught me that. Yes, and I must say I, I, you know, I was a bit nervous. Believe me, I hadn't studied anything for a long time.
0: Had you? Because did you finish uni before oh, you went to I,
1: I was in second year of a three-year property degree. So yes, you would argue that yeah,
0: you'd never really been to uni other than yeah, was the uni bar in the time. first year and, and
1: then maybe a couple of lectures in the second. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And that's when my kind of father uh, passed away, mm-hmm. and I just kind of thought, right, I've got to get to work, Martin. And the so, uh, but it was good to me. It was kind of a um, a sense of well, I can do it. Uh, but I did learn a lot of really good stuff, and I met some great people. I just met this fantastic group of people. It's really interesting. I um, uh, sim-
0: we, we it's I didn't know that you went and did your MBA at that time. And I mean, I went and did my MBA four or five years ago after after I kind of failed. I went, there's, surely there's something I've got to go, there's something I'm missing here, you know? And I'd never been to uni in my life. I went to college and, and studied um, you know, culinary school and hotel management school, which is like a university, but never been to uni. And then I went I went. everyone looked at me and said, what are you doing? The same thing, like, this is it. There's no entrepreneur in you left. And it was one of the best experiences that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I really, really enjoyed it because it did unlocked my mind and really gave me the finance skills that i had lacked because, and I and I did really well in accounting and finance because it was just like, I'm like, I really need to understand how to read these financial statements and I need to know them back to front. I need to understand my balance sheet. I need to understand my, my paper profit through a P&L and I need to stop looking at that paper profit. So what's my cash position all the time? And one of the things that I teach or, or at least work with all my clients around the world now is the first thing I said to them, Let's just do a little financial literacy. And they all shit themselves. They literally go, what are you talking about? So let's just understand. Talk me through your balance sheet. And some of these people run $50, $100 million businesses. And they're like, oh, I go to the CFO for that. And I'm like, no, you won't. Never again will you go to the CFO because the CFO could be giving you the wrong information. And if you don't understand you know, your current assets and current liabilities that are due and payable within that 12-month period, You may have a financial problem coming and staring at you, You and
1: you'd know this because you held a lot of inventory, right? So we we had about four million dollars worth of inventory on the (laughs) balance sheet. And you know, I was in the fashion industry, and I used to say my inventory is like fruit and veg; it's perishable. It is because Uh, it goes out of fashion. It goes out of fashion; it's worthless utterly worthless yeah brilliant i love loving this conversation. so it was not the most you know uh, and retail businesses are interesting because mm. you don't have a lot of real property you don't have a lot of really highly secure assets on the on the good side of your balance sheet right you've got what i call transient assets yep. you know and i look at it this way if the bank came in and put a larry of last resort value on my inventory what would i get for it oh i get 10 cents the dollar if i'm yep. lucky i was right? gonna say 10 percent you know, it's- so it's so I always knew it, and it, it it's really so financial literacy. Oh, God, I'm so with you on this. Financial literacy is, is not the numbers; it's what they're telling you. Yeah, it's kind of like getting under the bed sheets. It's like what's going on under there. Yeah, and the understanding that interrelationship between your balance sheet, your P and L, your cash flow, your intangibles. I mean, everything is yeah. so important.
0: I mean, um, the big one I always say to people is understand your payables and your receivables. Yeah. And check your cash at bank every single day. Yeah, And no matter how the size of my clients now, they will do it. And they're just like, Christian, that's really changed my life. And I'm like, I know. Remember the resistance you gave me the first time I told you to do that? Mm-hmm. But when I told you that I wouldn't work with you unless you did it every day and I quizzed you. And the irony of it is, I do it for all my clients too. I have all the access to all the zeros and the mild accounts. And I, I literally sit there and they always say, how is it that you remember all of our numbers? I said, because it's habitual for me now. So, I remember my own and my own companies, and so learning another 10 or 12 isn't really going to be a problem for me. And at the end of the day, you're also variable that you kind of understand. But if you know how much money you've got in your bank account, you know your receivables and you know your payables, you, and yet you know, it fascinates me how many people don't do that money. And they just, sometimes they just, and yet you know, whether they're great sales people that start, you know, how many entrepreneurs have we met along the journey? And I used to be that entrepreneur. I never care I cared about a paper profit. You know, when I was making like five, six million dollars a year from restaurants and bars, I was like, Oh, this is great. And then I'm like, hang on a sec, where's the money? Yeah. And money wasn't there. Too many mu- too much money. in inventory. Too <laughs> much <laughs> month at the end of the money. <laughs> yeah, that too one? Many, <laughs> too many lunches. Yeah. <laughs> too many lunches, too many great bottles of champagne, you know, when yeah. you're in your twenties and you you do it. So the, the thing is there's some really cool lessons there. Let's see so, the, I don't wanna sit on youthworks for too long because you did so many incredible things. I mean, you went on and ran the Rundle uh Authority. Um, you then went on to become Lord Mayor. I mean, wow! And you know now you're at the Chamber. Now you're Business SA. Um, but I do still just want to finish on that point because I know people are probably thinking the same thing. Why did you buy back? what was the trigger what was did you have to buy it back was it something that you've been tied into in the contract or was it you weren't happy with the way they were running it and thought you know what that was my baby i want it back what was was there some kind of driver good question
1: there were two reasons Mm -hmm. one was again i had the strongest inclination there was a market gap and it's because we repositioned the brand Secondly, oh, on, on reacquisition, or on, on reacquisition, yeah, okay, yeah, on reacquisition. Now, over that kind of fifteen-year journey, I must say, on YouthWorks Mark One, is that we rented it three times, and this is the most biggest fundamental re- lesson. What year probably. was this? So, I, I started that business in kind of early nineteen ninety-three. Yeah, and so I, I was still in high school, and I exited <laughs> it in about two thousand and six. Yeah, but you know the right? first exit. 2006.
0: Oh, okay. And then the yeah. reacquisition was 2007. About 2008. Right. So yes. GFC. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, how did that work out? Yeah. Tough. Yeah. So I. That lesson about reinvention to me is just, oh gosh, it's like visceral. It's incredible. It, it, it impacts upon every fiber of my being. I learned on YouthWorks Mark 1 that the best time to reinvent your business is exactly when you don't need to when you're at the top when you're at the top yeah. always reinvent I was the hoping top. you were going to say that yes. right why because mm-hmm. you got cash yep right many of us are in a position where we're forced to reinvent and when you're in a position when you're forced to reinvent what are you usually lacking cash, cash. and re- cash and resources and yes. energy because you're spent you're spent emotionally you're spent financially you know you you just spent, right? spent. the yes. business has just eaten you alive and you just haven't got it. To and you're sitting in a corner of a
0: room rocking back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, I've been there too. But that is oh, yeah. yeah we, we joke about it. Yeah. But burnout is a real workplace issue. Yes, it right? is. Especially and, f- and, especially for entrepreneurs. And for entrepreneurs and founders, it's significant. We don't talk about it enough. And it's something that really bothers me because, you know, obviously, you, you know me well enough. I'm extremely vulnerable. I'll stand in the arena any day of the week. Sometimes I make myself too vulnerable and do stupid things or say stupid things, but ultimately, you know, I'm there to serve people and I want people not to make the same mistakes that I've made in the past. And that's why I talk a lot about failure, and we'll talk about that afterwards. But so, do you think now that that buyback was a good decision?
1: No. 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 We could never get it past break even. So. It, it was maybe on some kind of emotional level a little bit cathartic mm-hmm. because what happened after we sold YouthWorks 1.0 is that the folks that took on the company didn't execute well. Right? They just didn't. They, just, they, they were looking to access the youth market, and we had a relatively substantive youth market, obviously, um, and they were looking to access that market, but their strategy or their operations and their execution were just... Off the money so i bought back i didn't really buy back any assets to be honest i just bought back the ip it was just it was just an ip it wasn't a you know it wasn't a substantial transaction at all um but so on a cathartic level i just wanted to kind of end the chapter well but really i had already ended the chapter well i just
0: did you wrap in the Rundle street shop is that the retail shop?
1: No, no. I, I ended up uh, reinventing YouthWorks into a very kind of, or slightly different kind of uh, offer uh, on the corner of James Place and um, um, Grenfell Street. And it was quite an upmarket oh, of course type are. of kind of, you know... So we're
0: the Ib- opposite the Ibis. Or where the IBIS is now. No, 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 now That's well, Twin Street, isn't yes, it?
1: Yes, down towards King William Street and oh, the old okay. executive trustee building and this beautiful heritage building. Oh
0: yes, yes, yes. Now no, where the, the old stump is across the road. Correct. Yes. The old black stump. Yeah. Correct. Not many people know that. The black yeah. the
1: black, black stump, stuff. that's right. Family court law. Yes, it yeah. was. And my father was a family court judge, <laughs> so that's why I know that building very, very well. As a kid I was running around the hallways. But the um so the but no, we, we really couldn't get it over breakeven, um, and it was not by any means a financial success, and uh, so I sold it on to another local retail group and moved on. I probably, in retrospect, just should have moved on, counted my blessings the first time, and just got on with life. Um, I just made my life inherently more complicated. I was running another business at the time, uh, when I relaunched YouthWorks 2.0, Uh, I was doing work locally, nationally and internationally. I was kind of thought, oh, you know, we can do this. I can hire the right team. We'll make it all happen. But I just don't think we hit the mark in terms of the market. Uh, And I don't think retail is a contact sport. You've just got to be all over it. And I wasn't. So valuable lesson. Tick that box. Move on. So would you call? So
0: one of the questions I was going to ask you, is that you know we know that and then you've answered it in, in a way business is not all flowers and rainbows like everybody thinks right they all think that we you know, we drive fast cars and we live a luxurious life drinking french champagne at least as a hospitality entrepreneur that's what everyone thought i did they weren't far from the truth i did a lot of those things it's just just that i needed to be a little bit more careful but what failure experience do you think set you up for success later do you think that was one of those moments? Was that a tipping point for you where you kind of went, shouldn't have done that. What did I learn from that? You're a very reflective person. So
1: failure and success are two sides of the same coin. Heads and tails. You can't have success unless you've had failure. You can't have reward unless you've had setback. It's the law of the universe, isn't it? Yeah. I, 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 when I hear just, an entrepreneur say to me, I've had 20 years of spectacular success and never did da- seen the downside. The first thing I think is you're telling me bullshit. Yeah, correct. I said this, Every <laughs> time. So, oh, come on, don't bullshit. Don't bullshit a bullshitter. <laughs> <it."
0: Right. laughs> <Hey, that sounds laughs> We're very good at that, are <laughs> You know, It's, it's interesting, Martin, that you put that that way. And I, it's a great conversation because there's very few people you can have that with. See, to me, failure and success are an equation, right? So that it's circular. And I agree with you so many people will sit there and say I've never failed and I look at them and I'm just like you're kidding me mate you've never failed right what did you do last week that didn't work for you and the thing is people fear the whole uh, premise of admitting fault and you know and if you read good to great by Jim Collins he um, he talks a lot about you know, oh, how the mighty fell is another book that he wrote and a lot of those were people that were just not prepared to be accountable for their actions you know, and, and keep going but in your case expand for me um, what failure and success then really means
1: well that's where you got to set your ego aside right mm-hmm. I did I had to the, so my you know, YouthWorks Mark 2 you know, YouthWorks 2.0 experience it just wasn't working you know and I was propping it up every month and I thought look this is you know, I, I just said to myself why am I doing this So I sold the business, I went to all of my suppliers that I'd dealt with for 17 years and I said, guys, I'm hanging up my boots, you know, how much do I owe you? I need to settle the account, you know, please do support the buyer. And, you know, and they're kind of looking at me saying, hold on, Martin, you had 18 retail stores, you can't make a gold one. You know, and that, that was the subtext, right? Okay. And I just had to suck it up and I said, no, I can't. And I said, I'm not even sure if I actually want to. You know, you know
0: it's quite it's quite remarkable that you actually had the foresight to make the decision I mean how many how many friend, how many people do we know I was one of them I mm. knew that I needed to get out and I refused to mm. because I was stubborn mm. and I wasn't listening to people and I'm like the GFC's come roaring through and what's the first industry that really gets hammered during a GFC hospitality hospital. retail
1: mm. and hospital and retail yeah you
0: know, and it, in my point i was so big i couldn't even see that anymore and you did though you were able to go you know what enough i'm not going to hemorrhage to death here i understand and realize that this is not for me and i can't make it work and i'm going to move so i think that's courageous in itself and i think that's that's why i thought that's such a great lesson for people listening is that you've got to actually know when it's time to go tear the band-aid off yeah, tear the band. <laughs> I was going to say something. Tear the band and let it bleed out if you mm-hmm. have to, right? Mm-hmm. But the, well, in, in in this case, just start repairing. Yeah, you know. So okay, great lesson for anyone listening. Then what were the next steps from there? You know, obviously, that experience didn't just go away for you. You, know, you probably carried that for a while, like everyone does. Um, you know, then you
1: went on and embarked on a very new career. I did. I, 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 after doing that, I, I moved to Melbourne for a while. I just wanted a bit of a kind of a, a scene change. And then, but not long, I don't know, a year or something. Moved back to Adelaide and the, got married. So I got married quite late. Genevieve. Genevieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and You're a very not, lucky man. And I must it's say, my late. greatest blessing, um, and an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. I met my wife through the Entrepreneurs' Organisation. I met my wife. She was a a Singaporean-based entrepreneur who is an incredible, incredible expansive thinker. My my wife's first inclination is why not. It's not why. It's why not. And how she thinks really is, I've got a real yin and yang about me. I've got a, a certain adventurousness about being an entrepreneur but I'm 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 quite I'm also inherently cautious. Mm-hmm. I've got both. I kind of got both in equal spades. So, but we are a great team. We are a great team.
0: Um, so I, I, I actually believe that too, mm-hmm. and, and so does everyone. And very and different. Think, very different. Genevieve is also one your biggest fan, mm-hmm. and you're the same for her. Mm-hmm. And that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Whether you want to be an entrepreneur or have an incredibly well balanced relationship, you know I have that with me. Lucy and I are our biggest fans, and and that. That level of support, you can't, you can't get it any other way. And I know it makes a difference because when it, when, when the days are, are darkish, without that support, you can't come out. And, and you
1: know, we're not super, we're not superheroes. Christian, I don't think it makes a difference. I think it makes the difference. The difference. Mm-hmm. It's it, and I didn't realize that, right? I certainly do now. It, it makes the difference. You, I think you're a student of people right you, you know I watch you and you're fascinated by how people tick so am I but you look at people who whether it's in public life commercial life sport doesn't matter what they're doing the arts who've reached a certain level they've kind of got this support network around them right otherwise you're out on a tightrope right you, you're just and you, there's nothing below you so the the I I see this in so, so many people, and and I've done a lot of business with Asian families. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, really kind of sophisticated investment groups who have got interests across Southeast Asia, Australia, Europe, United States, and so forth. Incredibly family-centric people. Every one of them. Every single one of them without exception. They're not solo entrepreneurs. They've built multi-generational wealth and influence um and they've never done it on their own and it, 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 it is a values driven approach too
0: you know fa- family to me is everything That's mm. you know, it's why family first is one of my biggest yep. value and and now i find that i do business with only people that have the same values all my clients you know and it, you sit there and you think you know jim Rohn once said you know you're the sum of the five people that you hang around with the most and mm. you're like when I mean, you when i first heard that i thought yeah whatever and then i look back at my life and i go Wow! If you have a look at all the really great moments of my life, look at who I was hanging out with, look who was part of my tribe, and now as I've gotten older, you're like, well, my tribe's getting smaller. Mm. But have a look at the quality of the tribe, mm. you know. And you would have experienced that too, because you know when you were Youth Works and Soul and you know, you, everyone wanted a piece of Martin Hazy, you know, because that's the way it is. And but then talk to me, you, you, and, and I want to follow through with this because I think you've taken that. Tribe, that collaboration, that that people passion that you have, and you you went in and wanted to really revolution. Retail never left you because you went and you wanted to revolutionise Rundle Mall, yeah. correct? I did. Yeah. I How long were we there for? Uh,
1: almost four years. Yeah. I became. I was on the board of Rundle Mall from probably two thousand and eight, just a couple of years. It wasn't long, um, and then I became its general manager, mm-hmm. and. The, we, and it was a, what's called a semi-autonomous subsidiary of local government. So I was I mean, this, City the Adelaide City yeah. Council, and it was all about change, well, it was all about engaging the community and then changing the environs. And there are 700 retailers on that city block. There's probably about 120 property owners. There's, you know, 20 million shoppers that go there every year. It's, you know, the busiest place in South Australia by way of foot traffic. Um, but it had flatlined in so many ways and it kind of needed a very, in a true positive sense, it needed a disruption. So we built a whole strategy around around, around the Mall, which included raising the funds for a substantial upgrade of their built form. But, and that's important, that was really important, but engaging the retail community and get, getting them kind of focused on a common goal of excellence was really, really important and building a sense of community because it's kind of, it is a shopping centre but it's not a shopping centre Mm -hmm. so to speak and um, it was a very uh, disunified community you know and we needed to just bring everyone together and get some kind of a common sense because you had some really big success well we we gosh I I remember uh, we did lots of things we Mm. really went for it
0: but in terms of activation if I remember correctly there's a lot of big numbers that were thrown around in terms of um, visitation uh, you, you did a lot of deals with the Adelaide City Council at the time to try and actually bring people back into the city. Because the city, or Rundle Mall in particular, had really struggled for a long time. It had. And, I mean, you knew firsthand because you'd been on the Strip, but um, do, you, do you recall some of those numbers?
1: Yeah, yeah. We, we, we secured public holiday trading uh-huh. through an amendment to the Shop Hours Trading Act where it became a designated tourist precinct not dissimilar to Glenelg. Uh-huh. And I always thought, well, it's the heart of the city... Um, it does need to reflect a sense of vibrancy for when, you know, guests come in from interstate and overseas, and it can't be closed. So we actually were able to negotiate with, you know, both sides of Parliament many years ago a change to the Act. Now, that was worth $80 million a year in terms of retail sales, just to that strip. We raised $30 million from the Adelaide City Council for an upgrade of the public realm, which is the, you know, the the mall itself, and that's why it looks a lot better than what it did. Um, the, The whole... Kind of infrastructure the substrate was actually collapsing and people's basements were leaking water and well you know there were a whole lot of good engineering reasons why that needed to be done other than the aesthetics which it was looking tired it needed to look sharp um but we did a lot of work in terms of retailer attraction so you know bringing the likes of you know i think the first international tenant we got in was nespresso mm-hmm. and we thought yippee just in the corner of Gordon Place and
0: on the mall, right? Correct. Like shop on the corner. Mm. Correct.
1: But we kind of then ultimately got H&M and a whole range of other ones, whereby we needed to differentiate the precinct with some retailers who would be there and potentially nowhere else. Um, we did lots of kind of, you know, really good collaborative deals. I remember one of them was the um, uh, Sunday trading was really kind of lagging. So, and I remember the occupancy rate in the city car parks on Sundays was running around 28%. And I went to city council. I said, "Look, what about if I get that to 80%, right? And they said, how'd you do that? Well I said, look, you're charging the same rate on Sunday car parking as what you would on a Thursday when the place is full of office workers and everything else. I said, let's do a deal and give me 12 months and I'll back it in with marketing and comps. So we did a six rate, six dollar flat rate all day car parking deal on Sundays, and we moved the occupancy rate from 28% to about 88%. Wow! Uh, it completely up. transformed the um, fortunes of the retail community on Sundays, where they're paying double time on penalty rates for yes. their wages. So they loved it, right? And you know, a lot of them would begin to close on Sundays because the oh. trade just wasn't there for them. So we turned around Sunday trading, we got the place upgraded, we um, secured public holiday trading, we engaged the retail community, we built a strategic plan with them, with their voice. um, And it was a really good time, it was great. And then,
0: Lord Mayor, and I'll never forget, I hadn't seen you for a couple of years, (coughs) and um, you were were walking briskly and you walked straight into one of my premises and uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, Martin, what are you doing? Christian, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm running for Lord Mayor. And it was like, okay. And you lost oh, at least 25% of your body weight. You were walking, hitting the pavement. It was phenomenal to watch. And I mean, I, I was one of your biggest supporters as I am today. And um, you ended up getting a nice, nice put through. Your, your, your votes were good. My memory, was it 78 votes? Am I just plucking a number, or do I actually remember the name?
1: After the redistributions, it ended up being a margin of 218 votes. Okay, so, yeah, I was making up. Which start. is the same three digits as the last three digits of my telephone number. Oh, wow. How's that for a coincidence? <laughs> that is coincidental. My mobile. It was and meant to be. So, um, but uh, that was, gosh, talking about comfort zone. Um, you ever, changed you ever, everything. You ever want to walk way beyond your comfort zone, go into public life, um, because you are public property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I did. I, I kind of was originally going to run as a councillor. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a different thought several months out from the, the election, and I thought, well, look, I'm not going to die wondering. Um, everyone told me, Christian, everyone told me, you can't do that.
0: I can't believe I right? told
1: you that. And again, sometimes <laughs> that kind of uh, entrepreneurial trait of just being just a, just a little bit naive, just a little bit ignorant, is positive. It's positive. Most people say, oh, terrible, you can't think like that. But if you had told me at the time, Martin, no-one has ever gone straight from being an outsider to the Lord Mayor of Adelaide and not sat as a councillor before... Right? you probably stopped and think twice so I'm kind of happy that no one actually ever told me that yeah. because I had no idea so I just ran straight for the you know that role and uh, worked yeah so I mean I put you know I campaigned for six months and you did you worked very hard seven that. days a week and thought well you know you don't know the outcome it's never never you know it's never a foregone conclusion is it so you just give it everything you got so and you know, I got up, you know, by a nose, and uh, thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm honoured and privileged to be here. I'm going to work, you know. And then you've got a lot of energy because once you get in, that's when the work starts. That only gets you to the start line, you know. I, honestly,
0: all that campaign. You worked, not by just me saying it. Everyone says it. You worked very hard, and I think the reason why I say that, I don't think you ever stopped working hard. Mm. That's kind of what's really coming through this this brilliant story and this timeline. Um, and you know, I think there's. I don't want to sit here and talk about all the wonderful things that were done at the council, because I think what you're doing now at the chamber probably plays what businesses say. I have a habit of calling it the chamber all the time. Good. Uh, and I, love, I love that. I love. I, that. I think it is the chamber, right? So, yeah. um, and businesses say in the chamber. But is there three key takeaways that you could share with the audience about your time at council?
1: Yes. There's many, but if I bring it down to three key takeaways, is that when you're in public life, you have to have what I call a servant's heart. You, you are there to serve, right? Mm. And and if you're not, you're there for the wrong reasons, right? Uh, I must say, I'm not enamoured by career politicians, right? So I'm, I'm enamoured and I will always support people, Have a you always got to look at people's intent. Why are you doing what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Right, Um, and I brought a retailer's philosophy into Adelaide Town Hall. So I wanted to increase the level of kind of ratepayer service because they were my clients. um, uh, In Adelaide Town Hall, the responsiveness to the needs and wants of the community in the city of Adelaide. I wanted to run a um, you know relatively strong commercial agenda. I wanted to build the capacity of the city economy. I wanted to attract investment. and, you know, quite a number of the buildings, which we've seen rise out of the ground in recent years, are international connections, so international trips that I've made working with investment groups to bring them to Adelaide. Um, and thirdly, keep your feet on the ground, because it's it's a job, right? And you can either do that job well, or you can do that job badly. It's not all about you, right? It's all about other people. and keep your feet firmly on the ground you know and it'll get you know you'll get bruised along the way Mm. in those types of jobs and you always do but as long as you know that when you go in Um, but I must say I when I November 2014 when I started in the role um, and I was there until November 2018 um, is that if I look back even when I had a really bad day I was having a great day it really was a terrific time it was an extraordinary time i met people that i never thought i'd meet yeah i I just met incredible artists academics entrepreneurs premiers prime ministers presidents Uh, you meet so many fascinating people locally nationally internationally because of course when you're out of adelaide uh, when you're moving in that role beyond your state borders you're representing adelaide Mm -hmm. right you're representing the wider interpretation of adelaide um, and you know you got to do that judiciously. You know you've got to represent the brand of your city really well. Um, so it was fascinating. It was great. It was all good.
0: No, and, and, and it certainly it felt like that. And as a as a ratepayer and a resident at the time in the city, um, I thought we were in excellent shape, which was which was which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you surprised everyone. You started running for re-election, and then you. Got tapped on the shoulder, or something happened, and you ended up at the chamber. Business as say.
1: Well, life lessons interrupt. Um, and you know, we've spoken about reinvention, and we've spoken about you know living beyond your comfort zone and all that stuff. Um, and I truth be told, I don't think that's the most confronting part of life. Mm-hmm. It's just a conscious decision we make. Where am I going to live? Am I going to live beyond my comfort zone or in it? You know, that's 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 a choice, and I think we just got to respect people's choices, right? I made mine, but uh, in 2018, and you know this all started happening in 2017. But I had a lot of very close people to me in my family um, who were extremely unwell, and the you know to do a job like Lord Mayor, well, you've got to you got to be vested, right? You can't be casual for obvious reasons. Yes. You're the Lord Mayor of a capital city, so. Um, I made a very conscious decision that I was going to spend some more time with my family and change my priorities uh, because there were three people within my very immediate family who were extremely unwell. So um, I made an incredibly tough call that I was just going to put family first, and you know that was you know confronting for a lot of people. Believe me, it was confronting for me, but I don't regret making that decision. So you know, six or months. Six or eight months later, I decided well, I need to do something. So um, I was really kind of honoured to be, you know, approached or had a discussion about the role that I'm now doing, and that's being Chief Executive of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Many people would know us as Business mm. SA, but you're right, we are the Chamber. We're the, the chamber. chamber of Commerce. What I love about it is, one, you know, I'm many ways playing to my strengths, but, the, you know, I'm representing the business community. This is like a hybrid role. It's very, very commercial, but it's also, re- you know, it's a representative role because I'm representing the interests of the business community in South Australia, and that's, that's terrific. And I see 17 industry sectors around the city, around the regions, you know, we're, we're statewide. Um, it's great. It's really good. And it's, it's complex and it's fast-paced and it's kind of everything I like in that regard. But we've really been able to kind of influence, you know, some good outcomes for South Australia, especially during a global pandemic. I mean, Mm -hmm. gosh, who would have seen that coming? Um, Great time to take on a new challenge. Well, (laughs) maybe I, you know, maybe you thought I was kind of sailing my little boat into a slightly quieter harbour. How wrong I was. (laughs) You were wrong. Because this has had some monumental challenges. Um, Not just
0: COVID though. the chamber needed a significant transformation and we did talk about that at the beginning and you were hoping we'd come back to it i made a note and i'm kind of prepped at this point because i think there's going to be some really cool lessons for for people listening um do you want to talk a little bit about that transformation that you, you had to go through at businesses say i mean i can share things, observations from the past and the present but um if i need to support it but the, the reality of it is you know culture purpose um the condition that said the chamber was in and we what you had to do to bring your energy and your expertise to it you know you ready for this share absolutely absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no right. no i am because I, I, I think i think there's there's going to be some spectacular learnings for people that listen
1: i'm going to share a few things which every single member of my team would already be aware of um, uh, because I think sometimes you've got to be just kind of, you know, very upfront, very honest, very transparent, and sometimes that can sound a bit brutal. Um, We're a not-for-profit organisation, you know, we don't do what we do for the money, but being financially sustainable is a very different proposition. and I'm kind of of the view that we're an organisation, so we're a Chamber of Commerce, we're a not-for-profit, we, we're a membership-driven organisation, we support thousands of businesses across 17 industry sectors, and we do a lot of stuff that if we weren't here, nobody would do, no, we'll do it. Correct. So a lot of SMEs in South Australia who have you know, uh, received state government support during COVID, as in financial support, um, You know, we've been working closely, hand in glove, with Treasury for two years um, to ensure that the business community's needs are met during COVID. And if we weren't doing that, Christian, nobody would be doing that. I agree. So it's, you know, we've been really strong on advocacy, but we're also a professional services organisation, as you know. I've got 65 staff. We deliver services around industrial relations, growth consulting, migration, trade, business brokerage. Uh, we deliver a entrepreneur's program, uh, which is where we do... The SA, doing s, a s, e
0: s, <coughs> s e s.
1: Say Yes, the yes. South yes. Australian Young C Entrepreneur Scheme. That's that's a learning program. Hmm. Uh, Encore is another learning program. Uh, we do WHS consulting. We do training. We Did do, you do all the regional workshops, <coughs> like you're in KI and Redmark. I was. Yep. We're, we're very, very active. Um, you know, just in the last few weeks alone, we've been in Kangaroo Island, we've been in Renmark, we've been in Wyala, we've been in Wyala twice mm. in the last few weeks. So we, we do a lot of things and it's it's very practical. Networking's part of what we do, but actually, kind of, advisory is what we really do. Really, really important.
0: We kind of you do a lot do. of work in that HR space too. Yes, we do. In that
1: advisory area. And I know a lot of members call upon that quite frequently. We're like the industrial relations or the HR department that, you know, you need when you don't have one, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of fast growth companies don't have them, right? They, they, they need this. How do I do this? Even right. the
0: sole traders. Correct. I mean, you've got a big sole trader uh, network of members. We do. And, uh, you know, they're it's a very lonely place for all those people when, you know, when they're able to, to just pick up the phone and get that level of service and
1: care, it empowers them. Correct. We're also introducing sole traders to not only each other, but... Also to SMEs and to corporates, so because you know they're providing services often. And you know, sole traders can be very, very niche. They can be very specialist. They can have great skills that they, you know the corporates need, the SMEs need. So um, we do a lot of that. Um, we work with sole traders. We work with SMEs. We work, work with corporates and publicly listed companies. So we are a true definition of a broad church. But we needed to drink some hard medicine, Christian. So. If we're going to go out there as an organisation and provide considered advice to business owners, risk-takers, entrepreneurs, corporates and others about how they're going to improve their enterprise, we're not running a tidy ship. It's disingenuous. So we needed to get our own house in order. And I don't necessarily mean culturally, but I mean financially. And we... So in 2019, we exited doing a number of things, which may have been well-intended, but they were loss-making, and they were always going to be loss-making. Now, it doesn't mean we do everything for money, like I said right at the beginning, but we must be financially sustainable. It's kind of like if you don't help yourself, you can't help anybody. Correct. It's a very important. It's like being in an aeroplane. You put your own mask on before helping others. Correct. And I think I even used that analogy with my team in 2019.
0: I actually think I've heard you use it in your... Your uh, fortnightly uh, update sessions yeah. that you do in in, in the atrium, and uh, and it's spectacular the 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 team engagement you get, and we talk about culture. And I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm dropping this on you, but to me, you know, I sit in my office and I can hear it, and I and I I, I get so excited by it because you you're not there to rah rah your people. You're really informing them, updating them, getting them. You know, it's the it's that it's the Burnhamish huddle right and you do it is it fortnightly that you do that
1: one every second friday yeah we have all the team together um for uh the team name This not me but it's called martin shout
0: <laughs> is that what it uh, doesn't mean i'm shouting
1: <laughs> at my team i'm often just shouting them a drink but uh, right. we have a really good discussion about the two weeks that were and the two weeks that will be uh-huh. Uh, and it's kind of you know we have many management meetings and so forth during the week of course we do but this is when we get the whole team together we do it twice and we do it twice a month every month and you know we we just talk about and I asked the team at each of these meetings after we've gone through a whole range of kind of you know more business orientated discussion I said guys tell me a great tell me a great service story tell me a story about something you've seen one of your fellow team members do or something you've done for a member so I get the team to share this. And it's kind of just building that culture of service, that culture of um, our members and our clients are our purpose. And they, if they're being successful and we've had something to do with it, that means we're successful. You know, We're not here for ourselves, we're actually here for other people, that's our measure. Um, and that's very much the culture I'm looking to build.
0: And I'll tell you, as, as someone who works in the same environment with you, um, and we're, we're not insiders, we're not working with the Chamber, we're, we're not employees of the Chamber. We feel all of us down, what are we, the, the West Wing? You're the West Wing. Not, we're the West Wing. All of us down the West Wing actually feel like we're part of it. Yeah. And that's a true example of the culture you've created. It's this inclusive environment. And, you know, and I, you know, I'm a member of the Chamber, so is the rest of us. But even when you just come past our office and tap on the window and say, hey, would you like to come for a drink? I mean, you haven't seen me there yet because I'm like you, I'm always working. Uh, but it is that that makes Business SA or the Chamber of Commerce and Industry such a fantastic organisation to be part of today. And I think that's the transformation that I've seen. You know, I, I knew others that had sat in your seat previously who sat in this office and, um, and I know them well. But what I'm seeing now here is the barriers, the hierarchical barriers have, are lifted. You know, there isn't this huge top end structure. And I think for anyone listening that has got a very top heavy, uh ultra at the moment, it's time to break that down. The, you know, it's, it's unnecessary. You know, you should have uh, multiple layers of leadership and, and it shouldn't be uh, based on which office you sit in. I, I remember, was the Fannie Mae back in the day? They were the first um, bank, investment bank, that literally went, "Let's get rid of the private jets. Let's get rid of you know executive. Uh, you know they had an executive directors' boardroom, uh, like lounge, that only executives were allowed to frequent, while everyone else was down the bottom. And Fannie Mae, what was it? I think they turned, you know, uh, they, they turned the market four or five times more in terms of profit and resource and returns than any other bank of its time, than Lehman, than Bank of America, than anyone there. So I think that's one of the things, and you might be thinking, geez, Christian, that's a big compliment, but I think that, well, that's what I've seen here.
1: What do you attribute that to? Uh, having a bigger office is not a mark of respect. Mm. Um, it just means you're occupying more real estate. Um, respect is earned. Mm. And you know, trust is earned. Trust is built. Um, It's through your actions. So, you know, whether you've got a office or no office or a big office or a mobile office, it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. Uh, What is relevant is, this kind of comes down to leadership, doesn't it? So it's kind of like how you choose to lead. How do you lead your organization? Who do you serve? What's your purpose? What's your strategy? How do you measure it? So we've put all the controls in place. You know, we now have P&L reviews every month. You know, so we should. Um, We have, uh, you know, management controls. We have a board of 10 directors. We've got three committees. We've got a governance committee. We've got an audit finance finance and risk committee, and we've got a marketing committee. Um, We've got a totally engaged board who do what they do on a volunteer basis for and on behalf of the business community in South Australia. That's just brilliant. I love it. Um, Nikki's a fantastic chair. Chair is Nikki Govan, yeah. um, who's a business owner. It's a lived experience for Nikki. This is not academic. It's not theoretical. It's real. Uh, she leads the board really, really well. And you know, the board, I think, to their just enduring credit, you know, they knew what turbulence this organisation went through in early twenty twenty, and just completely and utterly stepped up to the plate. You know, and supported me as chief executive, but supported the organisation and our members just as importantly, if not more so. And we crafted a really good strategy. And if I now look here as we kind of move towards late 2021, is that what's the key learning about Business SA over the last few years? We found our purpose. Mm. And we all know it. So what is that purpose? Our purpose is not us. Our purpose is not profit. Our, purf- our purpose is basically backing in those that take a risk and helping them mitigate that risk and helping them find opportunity, helping them navigate uncertainty. So, our purpose is all about two things. The prosperity of South Australia because we have a dual charter, right? We're all about South Australia and South Australians and we're we're all about our members. Fantastic. And we want both of them to prosper. That's our purpose.
0: You know, one of the really amazing Messages that's come through today is in, in your story is the amount of purpose that you've had throughout. Every one of your businesses had a very strong why. You know, um, Youthworks, strong why. Um, your role at the Rundle Mall Authority, strong why. Lord Mayorship, strong why. And now at the Chamber. And I think it's a wonderful pattern because. That is singularly one of the most important aspects of top achievers. They have a real purpose for what they're doing. You know, I have a very uh, a very well-known saying that, you know, well, my straight line is live with purpose, right? And, you know, a lot of people that know me and work with me say, you really do live that, mm-hmm. right? And because for me, I want to, I want to change the world one person at a time, and I put myself there first. I've made plenty of mistakes in my career um some public some not so public and you know it's recovering from those and you know what it is is this underbelly of knowing why i'm here that allows me to keep moving forward you know and at the end of the day you know it's bringing people on their journey with you and i think that's something that's really come through for me listening and i hope for the listeners too and we've almost well we've run out of time but what i want to do because i'm not how much time you don't have um, Who's your business hero?
1: Interesting. I can't rest that mantle on the shoulders of one person. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to take hold Because I have yeah. many. Um, I kind of look at some of the, you know, chief executives and chairs and owners of some of the large kind of Asian multinational businesses that I've worked with, and... I just look at their organisations, I look at the complexity of their organisations, I look at the sophistication of their organisations, and I'm going, gosh, this is just extraordinary, this is another level. Um, and you know, I worked with a family um, a few years ago who own a Singaporean-based multinational group who are into real estate, mining, resources, you know, retail, hospitality, distribution, development. That's some serious diversification. Serious diversification. Wow. Which is... Which that um,
0: brings a series serious complexities in
1: itself. But not uncommon in Asia, interestingly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the Japanese conglomerates, and they are conglomerates. Mm-hmm. You know, the Japanese pioneered the whole notion of conglomerate. Um, it We roll a little bit differently like that in, you know, US, UK, yeah. Australia and other markets. You know, we're kind of much more niche orientated. Um, but th- they've got large, sophisticated organisations with, you know, significant employee bases, significant balance sheets, significant markets, you know, extraordinary. Um, and I've learned a lot from these people um, about, you know, running sophisticated enterprises at scale with balance sheets, you know, in the billions. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because they're, they're no more different to you and I. You know, you can sit down and have a really, really good conversation and you can walk away with learning so much. So there are some certainly people in that category. Um, But, you know, my mentors are, you know, the people you walk into in the shop on Only Road who makes your lunch. You know, you've got to learn something from that person, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's the person you sit down tonight when you go to your local restaurant and you say, what did you do? I love asking that. What did you do? You know, how long have you owned this restaurant? What did you do before you had this restaurant? You know, I was sitting in an Indian restaurant the other night, and we've got this little local Indian which we go to once a week. And the, you know, was a chef in five countries for large international Four Seasons hotels, you know, Um, big organisations, just this incredible love of food. Incredible love of food, incredible love of preparing and serving food, right? And it comes through in everything you eat. I learn from that person. Yeah. So it's, it's, I'm not that kind of, uh, you know, my business hero is XYZ person. If I can't learn something from every interaction I have with every single person I interact with, there's something wrong with me. I'm not learning. A great answer. I'm not learning. Mm. So who's my mentor? I hope I have thousands of them, Christian um that's my answer
0: look i i know that that is the absolute truth with you because you'll even walk past my office and you'll knock on my door and you'll ask me a question and i know that it's because you want to you're looking for you're seeking an answer it doesn't matter who you're asking but you value who you ask and you know and i i I walk away and i feel really nice about it because i think you know what He, he he needed an answer today and I may have given him the answer in needed, or I may have completely <laughs> given him nothing. Uh, but I know that you do that a lot, and you've done that a long time. Um, you've got to be curious. Yeah. And I, I, and I, I think that's, that's the, you are very curious.
1: That's that's the commodity, isn't it? Like, yeah. Y- y- if you're not curious, how do you learn? Like, if someone comes to you and says, I've got all the answers. like again you worried you're worried right <laughs> so you've got to be curious
0: look you know it's funny when you use the word curious I think of my son who if anyone thinks I talk a lot well my EA today tracy had to take him to school because we were filming early and you know she said to me she came back she goes, he does not stop talking he, he is so curious about the world and he has an incredible story and he was already and I said what do you talk about today?'" He goes, he was pitching to me the school that he's going to open and how he's going to be the principal and what he's going to do, and I thought Leonardo, you just light up my life. But it's so true. I, I you know, I don't get frustrated by the questions because I encourage him and Lavender to ask as many questions as they can. There is never a stupid
1: question. Have you heard that saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? Yeah, I've
0: heard that saying. Don't worry. Lucy reminds me every day about why that three of us drive her crazy and <laughs> it has a lot to do with me. Um, and, and I'm comfortable with that. Martin, which book or books, um, that is there? Is there a book or a series of books that have greatly influenced your life? Or at least some of the decisions that you've made, and maybe share one or two of those with,
1: with, with your with our audience. Yeah, I'm a really interesting cat. Um, I do read a bit. Yeah. Um, I don't watch television, mm-hmm. and the and I never really have. So it means I read and I talk, right? I'm going to learn a lot more by having a conversation with someone that I am than watching television often. So, I agree. the what do I read? I read biographies. Mm-hmm. I love a good biography. What's
0: a good biography that you've read recently? Um, or one that you recommend someone to read?
1: Oh, look, I, I've read hundreds. Um, but And I've got a great library at home, and I read, you know, online and offline. But the... What's my... the most recent. Very belatedly, I actually read John Howard's biography or one of mm-hmm. his books. There's about three or four books on John Howard. But I think that John Howard, who I have met, I met John Howard in a... Uh, in a lounge in Sydney Airport one day, and I walked past him, and I was Lord Mayor at the time, and he was not clearly PM at that time. And I said, uh, "Mr. Howard, I just want to introduce myself. I'm sorry for disturbing you, but I just want to say, look, you know, uh, thank you for the work that you've done over the years on behalf of the nation." And he said, "Well, if you grab me a cup of tea, uh, let's have a chat." Oh wow! And uh, I didn't know John Howard at all, and he was one of these people. Who you wouldn't see from the media persona of John Howard mm-hmm. was that with an interaction of John Howard, you walk out of that thinking you're probably one of the most special people in you know you know that place at that time. He's totally focused on you, totally, and it's genuine. It's not fabricated. It's very genuine. Um, and I kind of walked away from that. We we spoke for forty five minutes. Wow. He knew everything about. The politics of South Australia in a very contemporary manner. He even knew some of the issues I was confronting as Lord Mayor of Adelaide at a city level. I asked him a whole lot of questions about well, what do you think my alternatives would be. he said, Look, you know, you've asked, I'll share my two cent <laughs> bit. But what amazed me, That's he, amazing. he knew the issues. He absolutely wow. knew the issues. Um, and it was a, just a great sense of very authentic extremely authentic in a very practical feet-on-the-ground type of manner. Um, so I, you know, very belatedly uh, have read um, Lazarus Rising, which is one of his mm-hmm. you know, biographies. Um, but I read a lot. I read lots of biographies. I read military history mm-hmm. um, and always have. I read a lot of Russian history. Can I ask it. you a question? With the military history, is that because you get a lot of insight into
0: strategy? Because uh, a lot of people do read military history
1: for that reason. Is there another reason? Is it just a passion or a love for... Um, it's maybe not motivated by the want or the need to extract strategy, but you get it when you read it. Oh. I mean, I think one of the first things I read when I was very young was Sun Tzu, yeah. which is, of course, the Japanese book, Sun Tzu, The Art the of, Art of War. War. And, you know, that was a big thing at that time. Of That's course. also a big book, yes that scared me when I first saw it and I never read it for about 20 something years and it's that's interesting I mean that's all about human behaviour that's what that's about but that's fascinating so I read a lot of military history I read I've got a particular interest in Russian history Um, I read biographies and I I read actually relatively I won't say I read I don't read kind of novels I don't think I've ever read a novel
0: um, You're not into the Mills and burns uh,
1: No. <laughs> not my gig. So, you know, I don't kind of do... I didn't picture you as no. a Mills and Bills type thing. But one. I do like reading. Yeah, yeah, I do like... Kind of like... Reading's terrific. Reading... Do you know
0: the pattern that we've seen with every interview is top achievers are all readers. And it's really funny because I... interesting. i never read a book. Mm-hmm. Even when I did my MBA. Mm-hmm. Sorry to all the professors that are listening. Um, I wrote specifically to what I know I needed to write, and then went and sourced the references to support it. And I kind of knew where all that lived. And it wasn't actually until a young, very successful entrepreneur in Adelaide uh, were at breakfast talking. um, who said to me, he demonstrated how he knew so much. Um, And um, he said to me, you really need to start reading more. And I thought, wow, you're not even 30, you're 27 and you've just done a huge exit. You're telling me I need to read. You're right, I need to read. And you know, I've always had this dyslexia and ADHD so I can't concentrate and he said to me, go read Jim Quick's book, Limitless. I now read 800 words a minute. Mm. Like 760 something is my reading frame. And I'm powering through a book and a half a week. I cannot tell anyone who's listening enough the power of reading. For focus, for discipline, mm. all of these things. And and this guy, remain nameless, it'll probably hopefully will come on the podcast at some point. Uh, he spends a fair bit of time downstairs in this coffee shop here at Whistle and Flu. It was the best advice I'd ever been given and it was the right book. Mm. Because that book, you know, I'd never read all of Jim Collins's work. I've read it all now, no matter what this year. Mm-hmm. And it is it my my intelligence has risen because it's, you don't know what you don't know. I agree. And the only way to acquire it is to read it or conversation. That's why I love conversations because I can sit here today. I've learned so much today speaking to you and we are way over time. And I I don't think there's anyone that's gonna be complaining about the the length of the podcast, but I'm I'm so grateful, Martin, that you took the time to share with, with my audience, but more importantly, even with me in my own selfish way, because even though we've known each other for a long time there are many things there that I didn't know and and I and I'm really grateful that you've shared that there you know, I might have to get you back on just to ask all the other questions but I want to ask you one final question if I may what habit what habit has made the most significant improvement of your life over your lifetime one thing that if someone else wasn't doing would help them just be more not necessarily achieve just be more and see more of life does that make sense?
1: yeah I'm not sure if it's a habit or a trait or even a trait even a Um, behaviour for that matter perseverance Mm -hmm. Um, the you're, you're going to have you know stormy days you're going to have calm days it's just what happens so but I think Perseverance is really, really important. I've certainly learned that. Um, and, the, and and also being calm. So it doesn't mean you can't be enthusiastic. It doesn't mean you can't get excited. But just being calm about it all. So that kind of calmness is, I think, really, really important. Uh, it helps you process things better. It helps you live in the moment. It helps you, and when you live in the moment, you absorb things. You understand things. You kind of, you know, you just digest things better. Um, so... But if I look back, um, you know, I am remarkably perseverant. And it, it just you just keep on keeping on. And it doesn't mean you can't... You, you've got to have good strategy. You've got to have good vision. You've got to have good leadership. You've got to have good financial literacy. You've got to be a good marketer. You've got to understand various parts of your organisation. You've got to have good cognizance about a whole ton of stuff, right? But sometimes life comes down to moments. And it just... Being perseverant, staying the course, you know, being considered, that's certainly kind of stood me in good stead, I think. Amazing. Martin Hazy, thank you so much for joining
0: me today on the podcast. And I am certain that there has been a mountain of value for anyone listening. But more importantly, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Christian. I hope this has really kind of created some value for your listeners, and I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Absolutely. Cheers. Thank you.
0: are you ready to start taking action on your business? Would you like to spend more time with your family? Then call 1300 643 229 and start building momentum right now. I know you're busy. In fact, you are so busy that you don't have time to work on your business or yourself. Often tossing and turning at night, worrying about the how-tos and the cash flow. How on earth can you possibly get off the hamster wheel so that you can take a helicopter view to see where you'll be in 90 days, one year or three years from now. In this program, I will take you from sleepless nights to blissful sleep. You'll have more time with your family and you will have the clarity and direction so you can grow and flourish. Call 1300 643 229 now and start building momentum.